0: That's a sobering thought, isn't it, to think about that day, that day when we'll see the Lord. You know, we're moving through the book of Joel, and as you know, the theme is the day of the Lord. So part of what we're going to do today is sort of continue on in that song. Imagine what that day will be like. So if you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn to Joel chapter 3. And I'm going to read starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, I believe there are some Bibles over on the table. You are more than welcome to take one, use it, take it home with you. We have lots of them, and I would like to give them out. So if you need one, feel free. Joel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. Because they have scattered them among the nations, and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre, and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own heads swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Let me pray for us. Lord, Speak now through the proclamation of your word. Strengthen, nourish these brothers and sisters. And give us a sight of that day. That we might live our lives now with anticipation and eagerness, looking forward The coming of our Savior. Amen. So, if if you're the kind of person that keeps up with the public discourse, uh, you will know that sort of one of the main topics of conversation is the issue of justice, social justice. institutional injustice, the failures of the justice system, the need for justice. Uh, If you were to flip open any newspaper or cruise through any uh, social media news outlet, you will be sure to find stories and conversations about justice issues. And, And we are a society in many ways engrossed in conversation about justice. I'm sure some of you have experienced those conversations, some of those conversations to be helpful and and many of them to be not so helpful. But what's curious is in, in a society that is very concerned with justice issues, it's surprising then that for so many, the idea of a God who judges and punishes. And who is deeply committed to justice is distasteful and intolerable and even sufficient reason to reject wholesale the God of the Bible. You see what I'm getting at? The justice issues would be so important to us, but when the Bible presents a God who is just, we we sort of shrink back and, and our culture shrinks back. For many, the idea that God is a judge who will call everyone to account according to his righteous standards is regarded as an antiquated, medieval, sort of unenlightened view of God. And so, in response to this aversion, many churches have traded in the God of the Bible for a more palatable God, right? A God of unconditional love that really doesn't bother with issues of sin. That's not really concerned with what's right and what's wrong. Now, functionally, he's, he's indifferent to sin. At least he's indifferent to my sin. And why is that? Because all, all he really cares about, all this sort of imaginary God, really cares, all he really cares about is loving people. Now that is at least how the argument goes. But, but I, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know. What that misses is the fact that you can, only ha- you can only have a good God if you also have a just God. If you rid yourself of the one, you have at the same time lost the other. In order for God to love good, he must hate evil. Right? God cannot be at the same time good and indifferent to evil any more than I could be a good husband who is serially cheating on my wife. They're, they're inconsistent. They they cannot go together. If you would have a God who is good and who rewards good, you must also embrace a God who hates evil and promises. To destroy it and punish it. They are two sides of the same coin. Last week we saw from Joel one side of that coin. I showed you a magnificent side of that coin. Probably in a subpar way. Who who can actually capture the restoration that God means to bring? But that's the side of the coin that Joel showed us last week that God means to bring full and complete restoration to his people at the day of the Lord. But this week, Joel is going to show us the other side of that coin. He's going to show us that just as much as God is a God who promises to bring complete and full restoration, he's also a God who promises to, to bring divine retribution You, you can't have one without the other. There can be no complete restoration without final retribution. I, I hope that one of the things that has sort of been subtly cemented in your minds as we've been working through Joel and talking about the day of the Lord is its multifaceted meaning. Right? For God's people, the the, the day of the Lord is going to mean the fulfillment of all of their hopes. The fulfillment of of everything that they've longed for. Because they will have God fully. They will see him face to face. But for the enemies of God, and this is what Joel is showing us this morning, for the enemies of God. And I I say this with as as much sincerity and severity and sobriety as, as I can muster. For the day, for, the, for God's enemies, the, the, the day of the Lord will mean unremitting despair and the realization of all their greatest fears. And the point I'm trying to make is that it must be that way. For God to bring about a new heavens and a new earth of perfect righteousness and love, he must bring about judgment and destruction of evil and rebellion. Complete restoration demands reckoning and retribution. And and that's exactly what we see here in this passage. The restoration of Judah inseparably joined to God bringing his judgment on the nations. Look there in verse 1. We read, for behold, in those days and at that time, in what days? At what time? When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, in the days that God promises to bring about this restoration for his people, he says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. You see two sides of the same coin. He will bring restoration to his people, and he will bring judgment to his enemies. So that's what we're considering this morning, the divine Retribu- I know it's a heavy topic. The divine retribution that God will bring at the day of the Lord. And I think Joel would have us see three things. The reason for divine retribution, I'll give you three R's. I don't, I don't do the, you know, the, the, you know, the alliteration every time, but I, I did it today. The, uh, the reason for divine retribution, the reality of divine retribution, and the refuge from divine retribution. The reason, the reality, and the refuge. So I'm, I'm going to actually work through this first point pretty briefly, uh, but I, I, it needs to be said. Um, our passage begins with the Lord declaring that he's going to bring the nations before him in judgment. And probably when you are reading that passage, the first question you ask is what does this deal with the valley of Jehoshaphat? Like, what, is that a physical place? Like, where is that? And if so, like, why is God bringing them there? Like, what is significant about the Valley of Jehoshaphat? Um, If you've studied the Bible for any length of time, you know that names are important. um, And that is especially the case here. That, you know, if you have like one of those study Bibles and you look down in the footnotes, you'll probably see something uh, that says that the name Jehoshaphat means Yahweh Judges. So in effect, what the Lord is saying is that he's going to bring the nations into the Valley of Yahweh's Judgment. You understand what I'm saying, okay? So I don't I don't think we're supposed to be, you know, on some kind of arche, not uh, not archaeological, some geographical search for where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is. What 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 the Lord is saying to us is that He means to bring all the nations to stand before Him as their judge, and that's the first reason. That's the first reason for divine retribution. That is, we have a God who is a judge. The reason for divine retribution begins with the reality that there is a divine judge. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm 711. We we are not free to live as we choose without eternal consequence. There is a God to which every single person will give account. Before him, all our deeds and thoughts are exposed. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Again, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but sometimes we need to just go back to basics and remember that we have a God who sees all and who is a judge. And it's precisely because of that reality that God now calls the nations before him to execute his judgment against their sins. Now, what are these sins? Look at verse 2 says, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Jump down to verse five. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures, treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. So what have the nations done? They've they've scattered God's people by selling them into slavery. They've casted lots for them. They've traded them, young children. Boys, girls have been traded for sexual immorality, for drink. As a result, God's country has been divided. The people have been left displaced and enslaved but not only that, they've plundered the Lord's temple. You see those references to God's silver and gold. They've gone into the temple of the Lord and plundered the temple and brought them in the, 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 those treasures into their pagan temples. And verse four identifies the nations as Tyre and Sidon and Philistia. But but the sins that I've named are common to pretty much all of Israel's enemies. So I think we can see here, even in these three nations, a representation of of all of the nations and, in effect, all of God's enemies. Here's the point. Why is God about to bring divine retribution onto these nations? It's very simple. Because he is a righteous judge and because they have sinned. It's a simple fact of it. Because he is a righteous judge and because they have sinned. As I've said, Joel's description of the day of the Lord in past sermons, right? Description, the, Paul's description of the day of the Lord is ultimately a pointer to us of the, the final coming day of the Lord. And so we must reckon with the fact. You here sitting at the Pfeiffer Center in Williamstown, New Jersey, need to reckon with the fact that God will finally bring divine retribution to his entire creation. And the reason for this is that God is a judge who promises to give an account, to account for all sin, to settle all sin, to punish all sin. Well, that's the reason for divine retribution. But Joel wants us to feel the, the weight of that reason. He wants us to see and experience and, 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 and feel the heaviness. And so he's gonna help us do that by showing us a picture of it. So, so you remember last week, I said that Joel sort of shows us this amazing, wonderful portrait of restoration. Do you remember that? All of those sort of reversals. It's this wonderful picture of restoration that he brings to, to Judah. He's gonna do the same thing here, except again, it's the other side of the coin. He's gonna show us a portrait of divine retribution. So he's going to give us a glimpse into that reality, and it is a a terrifying picture. That's the reason God is a judge who punishes sin, but here's where we're going to spend most of our time, the reality of divine retribution. So again, last week I showed you this string of what I called redemptive reversals. Do you remember, because of the locust plague and the drought, all the vines were laid waste. But in the restoration, God promised that the fig tree and the vine would give their abundant and full yield. In the wake of destruction, right, God calls his people to mourn and lament and to weep. But in the restoration, he calls them to what? To rejoice and to be glad. It's, 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 it's restoration. But now the, the other side of this coin is, is what I'm going to call, it's a, I couldn't think of a better phrase, it's clunky, retributive reversals. So not, not uh, redemptive reversals, but retributive reversals. We're talking about their judgment reversals, if you want to think about it that way. And maybe another term, really what it's to, when I show it to you, it's what we call poetic justice. You ever heard that term before? Poetic justice? He's going to show us a picture of God's poetic justice. Symbols of peace are going to be traded in for emblems of war. Hope is traded in for dread Strength is traded in for weakness and victory is traded in for defeat. In the restoration, God keeps, he holds every good thing and he infinitely multiplies and enhances those good things for all eternity. But in God's divine retribution, every evil thing is multiplied and enhanced and turned back on the heads of his enemies. Look at verse 4. The Lord says, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. They are rhetorical questions that the Lord's asking the nations. It's as if the Lord is asking the nations, "Um, is there some reason I shouldn't destroy you? Uh, Did I do something to you? And even if you were paying me back for something I did to you, still the payment I'm going to bring back on your own head. It reminds me of that um, proverb, Psalm 26, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. You see this all throughout the Psalms, all throughout the Proverbs, right? The one who sets a trap, that's the one, he's the one that will fall into it. You just see retributive reversal. Or again, you might call it poetic justice, right? The one who lives, Jesus says this to Peter uh, when he's coming out of the garden, the one who lives by the sword will die by the sword. The one who steals will himself be stolen. The one who lays a trap will himself be trapped. The one who violently conquers will himself be violently conquered. And these 16 verses are littered with this kind of poetic justice, right? What you need to know is, is that The future of all God's enemies is this justice. This bringing back of their sin upon their own heads. This is the picture Joel is giving us of God's divine retribution. Let me show you some of these examples. In Joel chapter 1, verse 4, you can flip back and forth if you want, or you can just listen. In Joel chapter 1, verse 14, the Lord calls his people to gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. Why? Why? so that they can gather together and cry out to the Lord for mercy. That's what you see in the beginning of Joel. But, and that's how, God, that's how God's dealing with his people. But in Joel 3, verse 2, the Lord says that he will gather the nations, and he's going to bring them into the valley of Jehoshaphat. He's going to bring them into the valley of Yahweh's judgment. Right? You see, God gathers his people to show mercy, but in the valley of decision, he gathers his enemies for judgment, where there will be no amnesty, no second chances, no offer of mercy. It's retributive reversal. The next example, Joel 3, verse 3, The nation casts lots for God's people and sell children into slavery for prostitutes and, and for wine. But in verse 7, we read, Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Do you you see what's happening there? The enslavers are the ones who themselves become enslaved. It's a retributive reversal. It's turning their sin and their evil back on their own head. It's poetic justice. In Joel chapter 1 verse 14 and chapter 2 verse 15, the people are called to consecrate a fast and call a solemn assembly. Joel chapter 3 verse 9, we find those very two same words. Call, consecrate, but this time it's not to call together an assembly for fasting. It's not to call together an assembly, again, to cry out to the Lord. Verse 9, see there, Joel chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Proclaim this among the nations. That word proclaim, it's actually call. Call among the nations. Call out to the nations. And then you see again that word consecrate. For what? For war. Not consecrate a fast. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. You see, God, God calls his people to cry out to him for mercy, but God calls to his enemies, get ready for war. You imagine hearing that from the Lord? Get ready for, get ready for war. Let all the men of war draw near. But, but this isn't like this isn't like get ready for war with like some neighboring nation. Do you know, you realize what he's saying? He's saying, get ready for war with me. Get ready to go to war to go to war with the Lord. Joel continues with the symbols of war. Again, these more retributive reversals. Isaiah promised a day. You you probably remember this. Isaiah promises a day, Isaiah 2. This is more the restoration side of the coin, right? He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The, the picture is God removing all war, right? All the, all the weapons of war are gonna be you know, melted down and then turned into tools for agriculture because there's gonna be peace. There won't be any more need for weapons. But look what happens in verse 10, chapter three, verse 10. The Lord says to his enemies, "'Beat your plow, plowshares into swords.'" and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. You see, he says, get ready for war. Now's the time of war. You're gonna go to war with the Lord. Now, why should the weak say, that's a, that's a, that's a little bit of a ironic statement there too, right? Why should the weak say, I am a warrior? Because he's saying from the greatest of them to the least, no one's gonna be spared. Everyone needs, to, every, all of my enemies are gonna go to this battle. All of them are going to have to face me in battle. Verse 11, we hear the call to the nations. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves here. This one is probably the most frightening, I think. When, when, that you, when you see that phrase, the surrounding nations, he's calling to the nations who surround his people. Right? The, it's an allusion to the fact that the enemies of God surround his people with war. But then do you do you see? I wonder if this if you, you caught this. There's this. Um, let's see where is it. Verse 11. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Wait, what? Who's talking? Who 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 are we referring to? It's actually a it's actually a prayer that interrupts this call. Right. So the idea is hasten and come. It's a call out. All you surrounding nations, all you nations that have come against my people and surrounded them, come out. And then there's this prayer that interrupts. A prayer to the Lord. Bring your warriors, O Lord. Every, you know, every commentary I read, do you know what those warriors, this is not God putting strength into his people so that they can face their enemies. It's not like God saying, okay, Judah, I'm gonna like make you strong now so that you can fight your enemies. Every commentary I read said, this is a reference to God's angelic army. Here's the retributive reversal, okay? All the armies that surround God's people now find themselves surrounded by God's angelic host, with no escape. The armies that once surrounded God's people now find themselves surrounded by God's army. And then finally, with the nations gathered for battle before the Lord, we find sort of the, the climax of this poetic justice. The Lord calls the nations up for battle, but there is no fight. There's no fight to be had. Look at, look at verse 12. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. This whole time, right? Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Get ready for battle. Rouse yourself for battle. For there I will sit to judge all the nations. There's no battle to be had. There's only a judgment seat. It's as if God sends word out far and wide, rouse yourself for battle, come to the battlefield. And when they finally arrive, God says, oh good, you're here. You're guilty. And then executes a sentence. And what follows is the unhindered slaughter of God's enemies. In verse 13, God's command to his heavenly army goes out. He says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. There's a here again, retributive reversals, poetic justice, right? Joel 2.24, the threshing floors are full of grain. You remember that, Right? the, 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 the um, destruction from the locusts and the plague had totally ruined the crop, but then in God's restoration, the threshing floors are full. The harvest has come in, but here the harvest doesn't refer to actual food. The harvest refers to the fullness of the nation's sin. In other words, God is saying their sin is full grown and it's time to cut them down. And that's the picture you get. You ever ever seen someone with a sickle? You know what a sickle is? That big big thing with the blade, and you see someone going through the field, and they just, that's the idea. Sinful grown, God sends his angelic army into, now just cut them down. And then look again, he says, the wine press is full, and the vats overflow. You remember that phrase from Joel's picture of restoration? Right, the wine was gone. They had no way to make these daily offerings in the temple. The drunkards were wailing because there's no wine. And they, but in the restoration, the vats overflow with wine. But here again, right, the vats, here, they're not referring to wine. Right, here, the vats are overflowing because God is actually crushing his enemies in the wine press. And the, and the blood, the, the, the vats overflowing is actually spilling out their blood. That's, that's what we read in Isaiah 63, right? That's, that's the picture uh, that Trev read for us. Why is your, this is Isaiah 63, why is your apparel, apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trod in the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained on my apparel. Listen, I, I'm not saying this for the shock value of it. I said this to you last week. I'm not saying it for the shock value. I'm saying this because this is how the Bible talks about God's judgment. This is how the Bible talks about divine retribution. And so the result is this, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. In Hebrew, a word, when you want to emphasize a word, you repeat it. So it's like when we say thousands upon thousands. The idea is, is a number of people Uh, innumerable. Now listen, I don't know. Again, another retributive reversal. When you hear that word multitude, what comes to mind? What comes to mind for me is that beautiful picture that we get in Revelation 7 right? After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But, but look, don't you see something? That great salvation demands a great judgment, a great and divine retribution. You cannot have a great multitude crying out in unity and love and harmony together towards God for all eternity unless you also have a great multitude of his enemies crushed beneath his feet. And that's exactly what we find in the valley of Yahweh's judgment. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. Do you you remember what we read in the call to worship? Psalm 110. This is actually speaking of Jesus. The Lord is at your right hand. That's referring to Christ. The Lord is at Christ, your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. (sighs) Okay. That's a lot of just like biblical work that we just did. Are you tracking with me? Do you, see, do you see the reality of divine retribution? Okay, now some of you are going to say, that sa- I can't believe this is in the Bible. That sounds so violent, and it sounds so brutal, and it sounds so severe. How in the world can you reconcile this kind of language and these incredibly violent pictures with how we're called to live as Christians? But aren't we called to love our enemies? Aren't, aren't we called to forgive people? And here's what I want you to understand. One of the main reasons, one of the main reasons that you can truly love your enemies and extend forgiveness in this life is because there is a just God who promises to judge every sin, and so you don't have to. Do you see what I'm saying? This is, the, this is the logic of Romans 12. I'm not trying to throw too many verses at you, but this is the logic of Romans 12, right? Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. How? Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How is it that you can move through life never avenging yourselves and extending liberally forgiveness and love even to your enemies? Because you know there is a just God who will let no sin go unpunished. He will deal with it. He will settle it. Maybe some will say all oh, this talk of justice and sinners being cut down by the judgment of God is going to make people vengeful and violent. But actually, the exact opposite is true. Listen, do, do you know why the early church exploded the way it did in the first four centuries? You ever consider so, so you get 12 guys in a room, right, who have borne witness to the, to the death of Christ? and his resurrection, and over, four, over 300 years, those 12 guys turn into thousands, and then hundreds of thousands, and then millions of Christians, to the point where in the fourth century, but the majority of the people in the Roman Empire are Christians. How does that happen? Do you know that in those three centuries, Christians are constantly, in fits and starts, constantly being persecuted. They have enemies all over the place. They're constantly being persecuted. They're constantly being mistreated. They're constantly being marginalized, imprisoned, right? They're, they're hung up. They're, they're covered in tar, hung up on crosses, lit on fire in Nero's courtyard. They're brought into the Colosseum and fed to lions. But do you know what you never see in those 300 years? You never see one Christian uprising, Never one Christian revolt? No Christian group taking up arms to fight against their enemies? Instead, you have countless stories, one after the other, of Christians who go to their death praying just like Jesus did at the cross, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Extending love and forgiveness to their enemies. How? You have to think that the Romans looking on are like, what is happening? We we are basically at points engaging in systemic, uh, you know, execution of Christians. And the more we try and hurt them, the more they extend forgiveness and love to us and service to us. How can they do that? How can you have enemies in your life or people that are difficult with, or feel marginalized, or feel alienated, or whatever? How can you have this? How can there be people in your life that mistreat you, and you extend to them liberally and unremittingly love and forgiveness? Because you know there is a God who is just, who will deal with sin. Listen, how is it that these Christians never retaliate, they never, they never rise up. There's never a violent, because they trust in a God who will take up their, did you, do you remember that little that, uh, verse uh, in there, in Joel, where it says, I will enter into judgment on behalf of my people. Do you, you notice that little phrase? That's not to take away anything, right? We know all sin is ultimately committed against God, right? This Psalm 51, David, against you and you alone have I sinned. And yet there is a unique sense in which when God judges his enemies, he does it on behalf of his people. He stands in their place to execute judgment on their behalf. And these Christians in the first 300 years, they knew hanging on crosses, being fed to lions, and being executed and imprisoned, they knew that God would take up their cause. That every ounce of mistreatment they experienced would be accounted for by God. And of course, they had the hope of glory, but they knew that these things are not just going to go unaccounted for, and so they were able to extend forgiveness. They didn't need to exact their own vengeance because they trusted in a God who would settle it, either at the cross or at the final day of judgment. And, And you see, so the justice of God actually frees you to be liberal in who you love because you know in the end God will bring about perfect justice. So listen, maybe you're here this morning and you look into your own life and you find unforgiveness and you find bitterness towards a certain person. It's not because their offense is so great and so unforgivable. I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I don't mean to diminish the ways in which you have been mistreated, But the reason for your walking in unforgiveness and bitterness is not because their sin is unforgivable. It is because you are not trusting a God who says, I am just, I will settle it. If it's unforgiveness toward a believer, you are holding against them a sin that Jesus said, I paid for on the cross. You understand that, right? When you refuse to forgive a brother or sister, you are saying, no, 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 Jesus, your death for that sin was not enough. I need to exact my own judgment. If it's for an unbeliever that you refuse to forgive, you are attempting to take God's place as judge and exact your own judgment by remaining embittered toward them and in so doing, uh, showing that you don't trust God to ultimately do it. But Joel tells us here, there will come a day when every sin will be accounted for and God himself will bring about perfect justice. That's the picture you get. That's the picture you get of divine retribution. It will be handled. There will not be one sin that goes unaccounted for. Before you let out a sigh of relief, I want you to understand something the reality, and maybe you're like, sigh of relief. I, I, That's not relieving to me at all. The reality that God himself will bring about a perfect justice where all sin is accounted for and destroyed, if you're honest with yourselves, it should terrify you. It should terrify you. It's easy to look out into the world. It's easy to look out and see other people and to see their injustice. But if you are honest with yourselves in the quiet of your room and in the solitude of your heart, when you look down in there, what you will find is a universe of injustice. When you look down into your soul and you look down into your sin, you will find a universe, a world of injustice. You will find pride and lust and greed and selfishness and rage and hate and apathy, and laziness, and impatience. You fill in the blank, right? When you look in down into your heart, you are not just gonna find a bunch of little oopsie daisies. You're going to find a universe of injustice. And if you're going to locate yourself in this passage properly, before you can locate yourself as one of the people of God who God enters into judgment on behalf of, you first have to identify yourself as the enemies of God who rightly deserve to be cut down and trodden upon in the wine press. Apart from the grace of God, that is the justice that you deserve. But amidst the overwhelming injustice in the world and in the face of the coming justice God will bring against all sinners, God says to his people In me and in me alone, you will find a place to hide flies bothering me. There is, I hope you feel the the, the frightening reality of that retribution, but I hope you feel the frightening reality of that retribution so you can hear the sweetness of this last verse. Praise God for the last verse in this passage where Joel shows us the refuge from divine retribution. Look at verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, In the heavens and the earthquake. But, but, the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. I I know I'm going long here, but listen to this. Hear me. The Lord is a refuge and a stronghold to his people. Those words both mean a place of safety. A, a, a place to hide, a place of security. We sang earlier, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. I think Joel means us to understand in these two words, stronghold and refuge, at least two things, very briefly. The first is that when you, when you feel the overwhelming crushing weight of injustice in the world. And there's lots of opportunities for that, right? Not only personally, but you flick on the TV, you, you scroll through social media, and there's just injustice everywhere. And you feel that world of injustice pressing down on you. And then you couple on that, uh, the ways in which you, you yourself feel mistreated and feel the victim of injustice. What we have in the Lord is a place to hide. What we have in the Lord is a place of refuge. What those Christians had in those first 300 years is they encountered persecution and all kinds of injustice. What they had in the Lord was a place of refuge because they knew that God would take up the cause of his people and execute judgment on their behalf. So you know, you know amidst all that injustice, there is a God and he will make things right. I can't see it right now. It's hard to believe it. There's stuff going on. There's injustice and it's overwhelming. And yet I know there is a God. There is a God who promises to make all of this right. And so I'm going to plant my feet there. I'm going to hide in that reality. That's the first thing. But more importantly, that reality actually flows out of the second one. There is the promise that we are so ourselves, filled with injustice, brimming over with injustice, will escape the divine retribution of God's wrath when we hide ourselves in him. That we will have abundant safety and security from that coming divine retribution when we hide ourselves in the Lord. The Lord has provided a refuge and a stronghold to keep us Safe and secure from the fury of his wrath against all injustice. And that stronghold, brothers and sisters, you know, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15 the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. We've talked about this before. The day of the Lord will be a day of darkness when the earth quakes. Do you know what you find when you go to the cross? Do you know what you find when you go to the cross? Matthew, go read Matthew 27. What you will find is a day of darkness, where darkness covers the land, and the earth shakes, and the rocks split. Do you know why all that stuff is happening? Do you know why Matthew goes out of his way to explain what's happening on the day as Jesus is crucified? Because he's saying, the Lord is roaring from heaven. His judgment is roaring out, except, do you know what? That roar of God's judgment, the fierce roar of God's divine retribution, is not aimed at you. It's aimed at Christ on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was cut down. On the cross, Jesus was tread upon in the wine press. Of God's wrath you, you remember God's uh, you remember the prayer of Jesus in the garden remember, you know why Jesus is so distressed in the garden because he is considering the cup He prays to the Lord Lord if it's possible take this cup from me what cup it is this very cup that we see in Isaiah 63 that we see here the cup of God's wrath that he's trotting upon his enemies and on the cross God is trotting upon Christ. He's stomping out Christ, but not for his sin, for your sin. He's bearing in his body and on his shoulders the entire weight of God's divine retribution for your sin. And he drinks that cup absolutely dry. At the cross, God's justice is done. God's justice is finished. He paid for all of it in Christ. God is, as Paul says, both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see that? See, God is just, but he's also the justifier. How can that be? Because Christ. Because Christ went to the cross. Because he died under the fury of God's wrath. And because he rose victorious over sin and death. Because our God is just, a day is coming when every wrong will be made right, every injustice will be accounted for, and because our God is the justifier of all those who have faith in Christ, we have the certain hope that we will not only escape his divine retribution, but that we will share in Jesus' eternal victory over sin and death, and that we will know restoration, that we won't have to face divine retribution, but we will know complete restoration. So, brothers and sisters, hide yourselves in Christ this morning. Hide yourselves in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a refuge and a stronghold to us. And though we are in many ways frightened by the picture we see of your divine retribution, we are so thankful for the safety and security that we have in Christ, knowing that we will never have to face it. Oh, Lord, comfort us. Encourage us in the hope of what's to come, but also remind us, Lord. Remind us, Lord, of what we deserved, but what you have spared us from in Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.